The lesson is love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. We should always be our own safest person. It would be really alarming if we were not. But creating that safety takes some work. I know so many people do not have safety with themselves. If I had a mission, that would be it, to just help people to be safer with themselves. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. Welcome to the Lesson is Love podcast, where my guests are creative, inspiring change makers. I see these conversations as a brave practice of learning out loud and relating to all beings as beloved kin. Every time a person witnesses another with empathy, we shape our species a little bit closer to the best case scenario, universal fluency in life's most nourishing skill, unconditional love. I'm Grisha Stewart, best known for developing behavior adjustment training, BAT, which gives dogs with trauma or neglect histories an opportunity to safely open to connection. I'm also the founder of the Grisha Stewart Academy, a collaborative online dog school. Our global experts teach professional dog trainers and the curious public how to nurture healthy community with dogs. As an embodied human, I'm also a dog mom, wife, daughter, widow, stepmother, aunt, friend, musician, and always, always a student. For this episode, I'm excited for you to meet producer Diane Redding, whose questions bring this podcast to the next level. Hi, everyone. My name is Diane Redding. I am the producer of The Lesson is Love, and I'm so excited to be making my on-mic debut this episode. This episode was so wonderful to be a part of, and I'm very glad that I got to join Grisha in interviewing Karen Faith. Karen Faith is the founder and CEO of Others Unlimited. She is an ethnographer, strategist, and creator of the empathy training curriculum that comes out of Others Unlimited. She is an expert on the practices of empathy and unconditional welcome, which we touch on in the show. If you have not heard of her, I highly recommend watching her TED Talk on unconditional welcome, which will be linked in the show notes. In this episode, we discuss how building a relationship with the different parts of ourselves empowers us to see and welcome others more fully, the transformative potential in practices such as intentional listening and unconditional welcome, and the overall mission that Karen has to help people be safer with themselves. This episode was such a treat to record, so I really hope you enjoy. Karen, thank you so much for being here. I loved your TED Talk, and that is what drew us to you. And my question for you is, What's your best case scenario for this interview? I'm really inspired by the way that our work intersects in terms of working with unconditional welcome, as I call it. And I would love to know how you refer to this practice as well. But for me, the best case scenario is that is that a listener is able to access this practice for themselves. The only reason I'm talking about it with people is so that more people know how to do it with themselves particularly, but but also with other people. The word I would use or the phrase I would use there is unconditioned heart, which I recently nabbed from Joanna Hardy. She's a, a meditator and a practitioner. And that's fantastic. We're in, in great alignment in terms of, of the goals here. I'm also, you know, all research is me search, as they say. And and so of course I'm also here to learn, you know, what we do with the greater world is also something that shows up on the inside too. And so anytime that I can find something that's useful for me, I try to teach it to other people. One thing that brings me the most empathy is knowing that I didn't have the the past experiences that everyone else had. Like I had my very unique history and ancestry and body. And so the truths that I know, and they are varied, right? As you mentioned, there's sort of multiple of us inside but the truths I know are really specific to me. Could you talk more about that? Well, I was thinking when you were saying about, you know, just wanting to share knowledge, I very often think about how animals sort of just know how to do some things and even insects, you know, that they sort of just already know what they're supposed to be doing. 
and how people don't. <laughs> but, but there are, there are some things, of course, that come naturally to us or that are somehow built inside of us already. And part of, I think, learning is acknowledging which of those parts are kind of built in to my to my DNA or which parts are have been created from my history and then what parts I'm choosing to to gather from others or share with others so that we can all kind of evolve together with this common knowledge. And what's really interesting about this practice is that particularly since my TED talk was released on YouTube, a lot of people comment about other practices that share these ideas because I didn't invent them. You know, they didn't come from me. And I find that when something is true, it kind of pops up in a lot of places with a lot of different names. And I love that. I think that's really interesting. But I also think that what you're talking about with your knowledge being so specific to you, hearing you say it with your words from your experience, you know, it causes me to, it gives more dimensionality to the way that I understand it. And so I feel like we're sort of building this um, picture of this kind of three-dimensional idea out of all of the different perspectives. It's like, I think about cutting the facets of a of a gem and that the more facets there are, the more points of view that there are, the, the sparklier it is. Mm-hmm. Right. I love all of that. And there's so many parts that sort of pinged me as, as a potential to follow through on. And one was that there was a, a piece where you said that that dogs are or animals are are born knowing a lot. And I would say that's one piece of our cultural fog is thinking that animals really know what they're doing from scratch. Uh, because <laughs> because like they know how to walk, right? To some extent, but then there's like the learning of how to do that. And all of the social skills are 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 simultaneously sort of something that they're prepared to do, but they're not they're not ready made. And so if you take a dog and you isolate them in their childhood or you know puppyhood or they have a negative experience, they have trauma responses just like people do and they have they have fears, they have aggression and they respond in ways that are adaptations to their environment. And so as you you were saying, there's sort of many, or to phrase it a different way, there's many paths up the mountain that dog training has been my my path to to empathy, to see like, oh, wait, this dog is behaving in this way for a reason. And then kind of eventually tying it back to, oh, I probably behave this way for a reason or other people do. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And I love your example of how, you're, so you're an, if I can get this right, so an ethnographer, is that the right term? Yeah, that was that was my road into it. You know, a lot of people that I encounter don't know that word, and I didn't either, even after I was already practicing it. But ethnography is a style of, of research. It just means the study of culture. What's kind of unique about ethnography versus anthropology or sociology is that typically the researcher is not distanced from the, their subjects. So it's a very walk in your shoes style of research where I would be kind of shadowing someone in their life or, you know, actually doing the tasks that they are doing so that I have first, as much as possible, firsthand knowledge of what they're experiencing. And I mean, that's one of the styles of ethnography. There are other ones. We don't have to get into it. But but because of that, that proximity, that really close proximity that the researcher has with the subject, that invites a very interesting conversation about number one connecting with someone, making them comfortable enough to be really honest with me. That's one thing. But the other thing is understanding how I'm impacting that other person, because, you know, from a scientific point of view, the researcher usually would be removed so that they're not influencing the subject, but that's sort of impossible to avoid as an ethnographer. And Mm -hmm. so I have to be very self-aware of how I may be impacting another person. I have to be aware of how I'm perceived, you know, because I'm not, I'm not a neutral blank canvas. I, you know, I look and sound like this and people respond to me, even if I don't necessarily do anything to, you know, exciting. So this two-part practice of giving people space to open up and also knowing myself well enough to, to be, to be fully present and aware of how I am influencing another person 
which is, I mean, it's a lifelong journey, but, but it's, it's a very full practice of knowing oneself and allowing another person to be as they are. I love that. And the, the work that I do in terms of dogs is to teach people to sort of find out what's the need of the animal. And usually that's then the root of some behavior that's going on. And for a long time in my practice, I was teaching people to really, really step back and be out of the way to see like, how will the dog behave in this scenario? Can we create enough of a, a distance? Um, usually like the dog is, is showing aggression or whatever else. And so we're, we're moving them to a distance where they're then not reacting to the other dog or the person. And then, you know, kind of had the the client follow the dog around and and be basically invisible. And I'm kind mm-hmm. of picturing you in that setting, also working on kind of minimizing your impact while recognizing that you're still part of the picture. Exactly. Is that okay? Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's it's tricky because, I'll, you know, I'll never be fully invisible. But just being aware of my own presence does a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this kind of naturally then goes to the next part of the evolution of the technique is to recognize that not only is it impossible to be invisible, but that the, at least in the case of a dog, right? So we'll take this away from the ethnography view or situation, but in the case of the dog, we're there to sort of emotionally support them and be in community with them at the same time. And so Mm -hmm. our needs also matter in this. And so the technique has evolved a bit more to have people stay attuned to their own bodies and you know, if they feel like moving away to move away. And if they, you know, if the dog is needing support to sort of offer that as well. And so to have a much more interactive role while still, you know, trying not to sort of create the path for the dog, but to allow mutual independence or kind of interdependence actually is the right word. So I'm curious to see this invisibility that you've curated. Is Does that have an impact on the way you apply this kind of in your, in your everyday life outside of the focus group setting. You mentioned something about, you know, you're in community with the dog and so your needs matter as well. And so in relationships, that's of course true too, between people. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm a researcher, I have some aims for my project, but my personal needs are not relevant. So I'm, I'm diminishing those quite a bit. And even though I don't, that's not a way that we would be in a relationship. It is a skill that one should have because there are times to to give our attention to another person. So I teach a listening class. And in the listening class, you know, I ask people to just listen to another person talk without interrupting them at all. Even if they feel inspired by something or they want to say, yeah, me too, that's amazing or whatever it is, just don't say anything. And let this person fill the space with words for five minutes or whatever it is. And I've, you know, I've experienced and folks have told me that just the practice of withholding comment gave them more understanding of the other person, more sensitivity to the other person. They learn more just to pause the reactivity, just put a pause on what I might have to say. And it's not a matter of denying my own needs, but just as a listening practice, having the skill to be able to say, okay, now's not the time for my comment right now, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that skill is, um, is missing, I think, in a lot of, of, of conversations. So it's a, and it's, and it's also really wonderful as the listener, as the silent listener to be off the hook for coming up with a clever response, right? So you don't have to keep the conversation going or come up with something to say or, or say anything at all, just be there. And that is something we need from each other as well. Totally true. Yeah. I did a grief class or took a grief class where we wrote something that we were reading to the person who had passed away. In this case, it was my late husband. And we just had someone listen to us, you know, as we did it. And mm-hmm. it was it was such a, a nourishing experience to have someone listen without any response. And it felt like okay, now I'm actually being heard, which, as you said, really we are in a a much more profound way. Mm -hmm. So the work that you do in terms of bringing more empathy to the world and more unconditional welcome, 
What do you envision that making possible in the world? Oh, I mean, honestly, I just want people to be less miserable. It's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, but it's also, I think it has a quite a big um, snowball effect. Almost everyone that I talk to is often at the very best case scenario, judging themselves quite a bit. And the worst case scenario, really hating themselves. And we treat others the way that we treat ourselves. And, you know, you could find examples that seem contrary to that. But I really believe that anything that, you know, I'm not able to love about me, I'm not able to love about someone else. As a researcher, I found that, you know, I was talking about my, you know, being my own research subject, because I have total access to my interior. So if I want to know why I do what I do, I, and I'm willing to be really honest, I can find out a lot about me and anything that I'm unwilling to see or accept, that's going to limit my view and limit my ability to accept someone else. And so this practice, I mean, even when we're talking about the practice of, you know, being silent or, you know, relatively invisible, that's a full practice of inhabiting the moment. Inhabiting a moment means accepting myself right here, right now, exactly as I am, which sounds super simple, but it is so full and so rich because it means that every part of me is here. And every part of the part of me that is not a researcher, the part of me who is is not doing as well, the part of me with a lot of fear or a lot of pain or a lot of anger, those parts are also here. And if I'm not able to welcome them in, then I'm going to be very limited in, in what I can welcome from someone else. But if I can learn to say, okay, yeah, there's a part of me that's scared. There's a part that's angry. There's a part that's that's jealous or really excited or whatever it is. And that I can dialogue with those parts and we can kind of have, have some kind of harmony. Then I can actually be here without either imposing myself on someone or needing something from them or rejecting them in any kind of partial way because I'm not rejecting myself. This ability to let go of the judgment of oneself and to be less miserable, you know, to come back to that phrase, to be less miserable, that is what's going to cause us to understand and heal with others. And then, you know, those smaller, those smaller wounds start to get healed up and then some bigger ones can start to get healed up. I have not had any experience with performing miracles <laughs> or solving massive conflict, but I do have quite a bit of experience with learning to love people who are deeply flawed. And in every case, I have seen incredible and unexpected things happen, you know, and so I think that it's, it's worth doing. That last part in terms of allowing ourselves to love people who are are deeply flawed, right, comes from, as you said, our ability to love ourselves that mm -hmm. way. And I was just thinking of so my my late husband was deeply miserable in his life and also extremely happy and optimistic there are you know multiple pieces of him to the clinical sense actually one could say um although i also think that that labeling is is a weird way to sort of trap us in our stories in time to freeze them as as one way of being these stories we tell about ourselves can be can be changed over time i think everyone is capable of learning i guess rather than yeah. call yeah freezing it as a label and learning to love him so i i see love as as like one of the i forget who said it originally but it's sort of the this notion of deeply wanting to understand like being being fascinated by the inner world of someone and so in in loving myself i could love him and in loving him i could love myself more and he was kind of the first human that i was able to really love unconditionally like my dogs i could always or not always, but kind of, you know, as a trainer got to the point of like understanding that their behavior had a root and being comfortable with that. And and so with Bryce, I was able to really to accept him unconditionally, even though there were times that he 
he and I didn't have a bridge in understanding. His verbal world was very different from mine. And, and so we just didn't have the bridge always. And I now have sort of this piece that like, there is a bridge. I just don't know where it is, but there's always a bridge from like how someone else is thinking or feeling or seeing the world to where, where I see it. Like we just have different facts. And so to circle it back in your TED talk, you had talked about how like the various aspects of yourself are sort of like different people in a focus group and you you hold space for them and, and you sit them down and say, okay, here, this is a safe space to just share with me what you want to share. And the work that I do, a lot of it is about finding bridges between the different parts of myself and in holding space for myself, then I can do better in the world. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think about, you know, what Dan said about being your safest space. We should always be our own safest person. It would be really alarming if we were not. But creating that safety takes some work. I know so many people do not have safety with themselves. If I had a mission, that would be it, to just help people to be safer with themselves. I think we've normalized self-aggression to a degree that is absolutely destructive, even under the guise of betterment, you know, this Mm -hmm. constant improvement, constant critique is not doing anyone any favors. I just want to reiterate like my gratitude for how you frame these things. Karen, when I was watching some of your videos this morning, um, something you said that just like really struck me was you said, Universal welcome is incredibly easy to access, and it is also universally transformative. And I think that, like, everything that y'all have been speaking to right now just speaks to that. And, like, a core thing that you want out of all of this work is to make people less miserable. Like, that is so beautiful. And I also want to offer an affirmation that this work is also liberation work at least in like in my branch of doing that work which is very relationally focused but it's like if we open space to allow the parts of ourselves to exist that we have been told do not deserve existence like that can only radiate out like towards other people to allow them to exist as well it's this crazy concept of deserving love you know I said to someone the other day and I'm holding on to it that everyone is worthy of love because no one deserves it it's not something you earn Mm -hmm. it's not an earned thing you know, and when we think about who deserves love and what parts of me deserve to be here, then we're immediately shutting out, you know? And so it's like, how can I make sure that I think about worthiness rather than deserving? Because that deserving is so transactional and and judgmental. And I'm like, no, this is when I, when I am fully worthy of love and acceptance and belonging, then I can also share that with other people. But you're so right that this is also work of liberation. And this is also work of justice as well. Just absolutely putting an end to the judgment, the dismissal, the non-belonging, and obviously the you know, abuse of others by starting with the world that we're in charge of, you know, like this, this universe that I, all the universes that I contain, you know, I am not always a very good God of my own world and (laughs) I can be a better one to me, then I can invite people to share that with me. Yes. Yes. And then I feel like difference becomes way less scary and way less threatening. Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm. (laughs) Wow. I appreciate that so much. And I appreciate both of you also talking about the, the aggression part of it. My friend introduced to me this term lately that I think may um, come from someone else. I don't know if they made it up, but they talked about like the death making that we are taught to do to ourselves and to do to other people and 
how that is like another layer of of all of this liberation work of being like no we literally deserve to be alive all of our parts deserve to be alive and all of everyone else deserves that too and so yeah I think Grisha you were gonna speak more to the aggression aspect of it but yeah like the really violent judgment that we have of ourselves just like finding space to I guess the words coming to mind is like melt that or to like meet that with so much love and mm-hmm. and so much like yeah I I see you I see that you're really upset right now you know how can we work together because I do deserve to survive I do deserve to exist and like let's let's work through this Yes, I, I read a yeah. comment on my TED talk today. Someone said that they have a wounded part that they hate. And, you know, I immediately just thought, no, it's the part of you that hates that needs the attention, right? Mm, it's like right. the wounded part needs love, but the part of you that hates that part is the one that is really asking you for love right now. Like that's the one that needs to, that needs the care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get so so stuck on the the expression of the need or the strategy to meet the need that we we stop looking right. So like the things that ask parts of ourselves that ask for something in an angry way or a way that we don't approve of, they, they get sort of like shoved down. I'm going to speak in an I statement here just to make it <laughs> more accurate, which is that my own anger right is something that probably I've been socialized not to have and. Mm-hmm. I'm coming to reclaim it and realizing that I've put anger and aggression in the same bucket and that aggression is an intent to harm, right? That strategy, that I can set down. But the anger is saying, hey, there is something that is happening to me that doesn't feel safe, that feels you know, unpleasant in a way that is not sustainable. And I need to say no to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this teasing apart of the anger versus the aggression, I think is really like I'm feeling it in my body right now as I speak that. I don't tell a lot of people this, but but a lot of the tools that I use in my workshops, I actually learned in the psych ward. So the first time that I was in, I was in treatment when I was 19 years old, I was in a really beautiful program, a three week long program where I took classes on really basic stuff, like how to know the difference between a fact and a feeling in your thoughts. And another one was on discerning the difference between being assertive and being aggressive. And we actually wrote we expressed all different kinds of things. We wrote the statement as assertive and then we wrote the statement as aggressive. You know, we kind of separated those things, what's happening here. And it's interesting too, because, well, this might be a little of a different topic, but a lot of people perceive assertiveness as aggressive. Mm -hmm. And, and it's because of this like lack of ability to differentiate because we're in a culture where any conflict is perceived as kind of violent. And um, I believe isn't there a book called conflict is not abuse? Isn't that the name of the book? Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Conflict is not abuse is a great book. So this idea that, you know, that we can have conflict and this is true, you know, when all of my parts are talking to each other, they are not in agreement. I mean, most of the time they are not in agreement and that has to be okay because that is the fact of now just receiving that as being okay. And letting those conflicts being curious about the conflict rather than um, trying to silence it or resolve it even immediately instead of saying no to it, you know, and that's, for me, that's a big part of the difference between assertive and aggressive, or even just like conflict and abuse is just, is it something I can be curious about? Is it something I can learn about? Is it something that we can examine and unfold, you know, and then maybe it feels a little less damaging or destructive. Mm-hmm. If you were in the middle of a conflict, and so let's say it's not one that I'm sort of personally in, well, I guess I'm sort of tangentially, but the whole dog training world is in this sort of disagreement about the way dogs should be trained. So there's the a side that uses punishment more, so leash corrections and that sort of thing. And then there's a side that's more 
trying to figure out what the needs are and why the animal is doing what they're doing. And I feel like I, I see there's a bridge, right, between what both sides are trying to do that could sort of come to a conclusion, but there's all this sort of interpersonal fighting online. And so if you were advising someone who was, let's say, about to make a comment, what advice would you have for them to make it more about getting a resolution versus being aggressive? Oh my goodness. What a can of worms. So I (laughs) look, my policy on social media is that I try to avoid talking to people, anyone who is anonymous, I do not speak to. If there's not accountability, if the relationship has no stakes, I don't advise people to comment because it goes so haywire. I think that in dialoguing with someone, asking for a dialogue or even, you know, maybe taking the conversation private does a better job. But what I've noticed is that, you know, especially in online disagreements, when there is a lack of eye contact, or there's a lack of stakes in the relationship, or there's a lack of of real connection with someone, then things can go sideways really fast. I think that, you know, if one needs to comment, then acknowledging humanity of the other person, even internally, is really important. There's a kind of common piece of advice in debate skills, which is that before you debate your opponent, you should be able to articulate their argument as good or better than they can. You know, it's like, do I fully understand what you're saying before I shoot back something else? Let's make sure that I do. And so, you know, ask a question before asserting another opinion. Ask a question, make sure that you totally understand what it is that you're responding to. And then also, I mean, in terms of just being less aggressive online. I try to thank people first for sharing. I mean, it sounds so simple and basic, but letting folks know that you appreciate what they have to say, that you're not just here to tell them that they're wrong. I think that helps. You know, it helps to, yeah, to just be able to step in that other person's shoes. I don't do a lot of online commenting for all the reasons that I just mentioned, but I think that there is a way to do it. And it starts with making sure that you know that the person who wrote that comment is a human being. Mm-hmm. Sort of holding on to our own humanity by remembering that they are also human. Yeah. It's just so easy online to forget that. And it's mm-hmm. so easy to think that it's just words fighting each other, but it's not. It's not just ideas or words fighting each other. It's really a wild space. I'd like to circle back. There was a how do you do that question that was kind of earlier on that came up in my mind. So when you're holding a space for kind of the different parts of you, how do you do that? Like, what does that look like? I usually start in a, either in a meditative posture or genuinely just relaxing. I could just be laying down or just a time that I can listen to myself. In the morning, I have a little roll call. I just ask, who do we have on board today? Who's in the room? Who's on the bus? Whatever it is. And I kind of throw it out there to just ask, like, you know, who is available. And I today heard a lot all at once. And then I have to say, okay, thanks for sharing. I'm going to ask you to speak one at a time and please (laughs) make your requests reasonable, you know, and asking them to speak one at a time really helps. You know, the first time that I did this, I did not think it was going to work. I didn't think that I was going to be able to basically command my thoughts to change shape and form and rhythm and volume. And I can. So they're very reasonable if you speak to them with love. So I just, you know, I ask them how they're doing. I ask them what they need. I ask them what they need me to know. And, you know, if I'm struggling with something, I might ask them how they feel about something that I'm dealing with. And when one of me is in the space making trouble, I will kind of dialogue with that part of myself. And I think that's the most important part is if when there is a part of me and there often is, I mean, there's still often is a part of me who is angry or shaming or generally being unhelpful. I've got to stop and without getting caught up in it, without letting it take over my experience, I've got to say, hey, what's going on with you? You seem upset and really listen. And sometimes it's a matter of, I'm tired. We're not sleeping well. And I'm like, okay, I got it. And sometimes it's deeper. Sometimes it's like, you are really off program right now and you are not doing a good job of this or that. And I have to say, okay, I heard that. Thank you very much. Please stop telling me that I'm a piece of shit though. (laughs) It's 
(laughs) You're going to need different phrasing if you really want me to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that also works, you know, and when I get the ones that are like, you don't deserve to live, I'm just like, okay, is that true though? Is that true? And of course they're like, no, (laughs) no. I'm like, okay, well then why don't you tell me what's true? Tell me what's the truth. And it's really wild. You know, when you get in there, it's kind of like that, you know, when you ask why 15 times, you start to deconstruct the fabric of the universe. You know, it's like really, really amazing to have this dialogue and to have unlimited access to the all these parts of myself and to meet more of them all the time. So I just got this visual of you having this dialogue with all these different parts of you. And one thing that I wonder is, do you ever have a like a gratitude jam? Yes. You know, I was just thinking, I've, I forgot a really important part is that it's that every one of these conversation has to end with me thanking all of them for telling me what's happening with them and telling them that I love them. And the, I love yous are, they were really hard at first because I didn't mean it at all. And I had to just say it until I meant it. And now I really do. This is so weird to talk about with people because You know, I was raised to be very humble and not to be, you know, selfish or self-congratulating and kind of, you know, you're not supposed to be super into yourself, but I love myself so much. (laughs) Sometimes when I have a few minutes that I have to wait for something and I don't want to just scroll on my phone, I'll just, you know, give myself some love and just be like, you know what, you were so great and you are you are really special and you're really cool and you're doing such a good job and you're so interesting and you've got great friends <laughs> like just like mm. it's a really beautiful it's and it makes me feel really good and i and i mean it now mm. you know yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you would be willing to ask those parts of you now if you could what things would they be grateful for to you let me, I'll ask them. We're grateful you finally started listening. That's what <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're grateful to be here and to be seen. Yeah. Oh, they're grateful to be a part of the show. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It sounds like you know, I didn't, I didn't really start practicing this with myself until I think it was about five years ago. And I learned about it beforehand, but I wasn't really practicing. And I was trying to check in with myself and trying to dialogue with myself, but I was forgetting a couple of really important parts. And, you know, one of them was that gratitude and love. And, but the one that really changed the game for me was establishing boundaries and with myself, which I kind of touched on in my TED talk, but it was a time when I was really struggling with suicidality and that was kind of relentless, just constantly, constantly, I was hearing this urge to die and I felt like beaten down by it. And I was kind of like begging, like, please, please, please stop doing this, stop doing this. You know, and I went to talk to a friend of mine, the friend of mine who taught me to do this, actually. And he was like, oh, you're just taking orders from them. Like, you're just going and saying, what does everybody want from me? And you're trying to please everyone. It's like, you get to tell them what you want from them, too. And I was like, oh, what? You know, he's like, yeah, you can also tell them, hey, I get that you're really upset, but I can't deal with this right now. Can you please give me a break for a couple of hours? Or even just, you know, if you can't do it, just ask for what you need. And it never occurred to me that I could just ask them to to leave me alone. (laughs) And so, you know, at first I didn't, I think it took me a couple of days after he told me that I was trying to, and there was this one night, I mean, it was a really, it was a life-changing moment where I had actually already gone to bed and I was in bed and my brain was doing this and I don't know what it was. And I still don't, super understand but there was just a part of me that said get up and go outside and it was winter and I was you know already dressed for bed had my contacts out all that stuff it's like get up and go outside right now just get up and go I mean I felt like I was in a life or death situation because of what was happening in my head 
And I, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go outside. And I went and I sat on my stoop in the cold and this part of myself was super noisy. And finally I said, listen, I hear you that you're upset, but I cannot let you stop us from living. And I need you to get on board with this. I'm going to listen to you. I promise to take care of you, but I'm not going to obey you. And it completely shifted that dynamic. The constant chatter stopped. And this part of me that was really, really wounded and hurt and upset and scared just said, okay. Mm -hmm. And she was like, but I'm really in pain, you know? And I was like, I know, I know you are. We're going to work this out, but I need you to help me. And I mean, it's not like I haven't had a problem since that day, but from that day, my relationship with myself changed. It's kind of weird. Sometimes I feel like excited by challenges because I can't wait to bring it to the committee. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I can't, I can't wait to hear what they have to say about this one. And it's just a, you know, it's a different relationship I have with myself now. That's fantastic. Reminds me. So I had a friend over with her child and the child was asking her mom if she could open up something that would have just destroyed the thing. And so I recognized that her mom wasn't able to say clearly yes or no. And so the question just kept going over and over. So there was still like room for hope, right? That this might happen similar to how like that negative voice in your head was, it was still hopeful that that was the answer out of the pain. And so the child was you know, asking and asking. And I said, you can ask as many times as you want to, but the answer will always be no. Mm. And and she was like, oh, okay. And then kind of went on to something else. <laughs> so that surety, like I wasn't aggressive, but I was oh. clear, just like super clear about this is off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was a really strong energy from me too. When I changed the way that I spoke to this part of me and also not angry, not aggressive, just look, here's the deal. I am driving and I need your cooperation. And I actually wrote on my whiteboard back then, because this was such a moment for me, I wrote, speak in the imperative voice. You know, I haven't used that phrase in a while, but to speak to myself in the imperative voice, it was really important. I talked to people about this practice a bit and Some people I've spoken to who practice it, practice it a little bit more softly than I do. And I think that's kind of what I was trying to do in the beginning is it's like, oh, give yourself a lot of love, give yourself whatever you need, be gentle with yourself. It's like, yeah, until yourself starts to be an asshole and then tell yourself (laughs) to pull it together. You know, it's like, come on, I need your cooperation. We've got things to do. And one of the most important things is to stay alive. So this is how it's going to go. The metaphor that I think of all the time is just a child throwing a tantrum in a grocery store. You know, we've all seen it. Some of us have done it. And the right thing to do is not to scream at the child, shame the child, kick the child or ignore the child. You know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. hey, look, you seem really upset. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Do you need something? Okay, well, we're going to get your needs met later. But what I need from you is to shut up, get in the car, (laughs) you know, whatever it is. And that for me is part of the energy. If you can do it with less aggression than I sometimes use, those are probably good. I mean, my friend who coached me through it, I was always told me, you know, never to say shut up to myself. And I try not to, Mm -hmm. but there are boundaries. Yeah. Boundaries can be spoken in the imperative in a way that's not shaming, not blaming, just this will happen. Like, this is my line. I actually just read this week about how to deal with a, a toddler who's having a meltdown I don't have a toddler, but I have dogs. And I was specifically working on changing what I tell people what to do when their dog has a meltdown. And I wanted to read like, what's the current literature on on that for, for toddlers? And it, and it really is like holding space, being with them. Violence is not allowed. So that's the firm boundary. And if you need to go to a space that's quieter, so they're not disturbing somebody else, do that. But generally, you know, no shaming, no blaming. Don't let it kick off your own internal toddler as well. Yeah. I think about, you know, the parenting metaphors are so interesting because I think that many of these parts of ourselves who are acting out are the parts that maybe weren't parented in the way that they needed to be. And that, you know, parenting oneself 
is what it means to be an adult. Mm -hmm. When I can become my own mother and father or guardian of some kind, that is when I don't need one anymore. And that happened real late for me. (laughs) The good thing is life is long. Yes. (laughs) Same. (laughs) I consider my husband to be sort of the stepfather to my inner child and same thing, vice versa. Right. So I, I have the final authority. All of these little parts of me are, are my ultimate responsibility and I'm letting him in on the raising of them since he's so intimately affected. That is such a great way of looking at it. Yeah. That's really helpful to me. I've struggled in my own partnership to know, you know, where is my responsibility and where is your responsibility and, and where do they inform one another, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're, we're in this for, for life together. Right. And so I see relationship as this beautiful and messy and sometimes very uncomfortable containers or crucible for working out the stuff. Like ultimately our partners are, are going to trigger everything because like the more we let them in, the more sort of unprotected we are in those spaces. And so basically kind of only letting my partner into the places where I still have an adult able to keep from hurting him. Sort of, I have all of the information, right? And I have the sort of internal voice that can say and stop, right? And so kind of gradually, you know, telling on myself for the internal story that I have so that he can help me, you know, give love and sanctuary to those hurt parts of myself. And to recognize that any healing I do is for his benefit as well as my own and vice versa. Right. Because we can only really fully connect in ways that we're healed and find joy in the places of us that are unencumbered. And, And so for me, it's not just about healing, but also like, where are we going with it? Like, it's not just to not hurt, but also like, where's the thrival where's the part where we thrive the most and like the system he and i have sort of evolved together is turn toward love so if Mm -hmm. there's a decision that's the way we're going to go and that might be fierce compassion that includes a no but it's the loving one Mm. that's very good it's one of the things i'm proud of i have to say like similar to you i'm not like we're not supposed to be proud of things but i'm like <laughs> this is my like full-time job right it's <laughs> to like yeah. how to make myself a better human like like not just like a money job but like this is this is the work like this is why yeah. i'm here is to like remove any conditioning that is causing friction between me and another being or me and myself and so I'm proud it's like working. It's like, I'm not perfect, but it's working. Yeah. Not to get too spacey, but also, I mean, other beings are, are yourself, you know, we're, we're so connected that I find that I feel that all of these parts of me are my, they're my connections to the world, you know, not that I contain everyone in the universe, but why not? I mean, I also think that I, that we're, we're made out of all these different pieces And even just to think about the DNA in my body and how many hundreds of thousands of ancestors that I have and all the people who've made me up that are in here that allow me to connect with other people. And it's like, at that point, you really stop seeing us as being separate. You know, this is another really beautiful part of the practice for me is that in my TED talk, I talked about that I kind of did it in what might be perceived as backwards order. I practiced accepting other people first. It was easier for me that way. But when I started to really practice unconditionally welcoming people who I didn't like, or I didn't respect, I didn't enjoy. And I was able to feel that shift and feel what it felt like to say, wait a minute, this person is not bad. This person is still whole. This person is complicated and deep and rich and also wants many of the same things that I do and maybe share as many of the same values. And there's not a, there's really nothing for me to judge here. And then I was able to kind of start to see that those parts of myself that I, you know, wanted to hide or wanted to get rid of were equally, you know, whole and rich and worthy of, of love, which is 
kind of bananas. When you really encounter some pretty gnarly people and parts of yourself, it's like, wait, what? Even this one? And it's like, yeah, even that one. That one just wants peace, just wants love, just wants to belong, just like everybody else. It's the same. In my house, we have a phrase that say, I'd like to sanctuary that. So we use sanctuary, you know, when we get to a place where we can't language, but also just when we're really wanting to cement or put something into our memory, something profound. And and that feeling in my body that you created with that picture that you painted of being all part of the same experience. And of course, we are unique and we are also part of the same experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, really good. So that's why we did this show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you any dog questions or give you the chance to ask (laughs) any. So, So just to kind of round out the show, do you have anything that's going on that's alive for you in your life with your dog that you that you wanted to be able to ask me in this time? And yeah. you can also say no. No, I do. So Lula is the greatest dog in the world. I know that you probably think that you've already met the greatest dog in the world, but <laughs> it's, it's Lula. She's fantastic. She is the sweetest and cutest. And uh, I am so, so grateful. I'm like overwhelmed that I get to know her in this lifetime because she's so cool. One of her special qualities is that she is extremely sensitive to our emotions. And if one of us is sad or in pain, she knows immediately. I mean, even one day, you know, Drew was just on the computer on the couch and he got an email that upset him. He didn't even say anything, nothing happened, but he got really, you know, he felt this kind of, you know, feeling in his gut and she was right over there to him, just licking his face, you know, and it's a, her sensitivity to it is so strong. It's really precious. And sometimes, you know, if I cry about something, she's right there cuddling me. If I, if I have a headache, she knows she's really special. And when Drew and I argue, she gets very stressed out. And it's helpful to us in a lot of ways because it's a canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, Lula's getting stressed out. And she also kind of she starts to panic and she starts to kind of go between us. You know, she'll kind of come and and nudge us or or kiss us and try to get us. She's like bringing the pack together. Mm-hmm. She's like, gotta get them back together. And it works a lot of the time, bless her heart. But I also just would ask you if you have any thoughts on how to help soothe her after she's had some anxiety about our feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, one, I love that you're aware of that and that you're attuned to her. And I would say that Zuki in my household is one of the reasons why Tom and I have developed the skills that we have, because Mm -hmm. also she's the canary in our coal mine. And so that attunement is useful and keep using it and be able to set boundaries, not just for yourselves, but also for her in terms of where a discussion is going. That's where that imperative voice goes. (laughs) You know, if for some reason it is going to a place that's scary to her, that it's okay to speak up to the humans in there and say, we're not going to do this right now. And we're going to take a break. And so that's one thing. And then in terms of soothing her, one of the best things you can do to soothe her is really to soothe your own nervous system. So doing breath work or meditation or all the different ways that you might soothe. And so like the four, seven, eight breathing is one of my favorite because it's super specific, super easy, and that you would both do it, right? Because she's going to be attuned to both of you. The other is if you're petting her, have two hands on her because one-handed petting tends to be more exciting than two hands. It can be very calming to sort of have a grounded hand. And then have the other one very, very slowly moving. I usually have like a hand on the chest and then one hand on the, you know, wherever the dog most wants to be pet, but like the back of the neck or the face. And then very slowly down the body, like taking 10 or 20 seconds to get to the end. Mm -hmm. The slower, the better. So if you have space to do it, even more slowly do that. And then also to be doing that sort of thing in other times. So that it becomes a part of her normal, like, okay, we're safe. And I also add a verbal cue to that. So I usually say you're safe. Mm-hmm. And before we start, actually, so I'll get, I'll paint the whole picture of it. So I have sort of my hand on my chest and I say, 
you're safe because that's really one of the people who needs to know it or all the various aspects of me need to know that I'm safe. So you're safe and then do the the petting so that eventually the verbal cue also has meaning. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more question. Sure. She somehow also knows when there is a dog enthusiast nearby. Mm -hmm. We're walking down the sidewalk. She just knows and she will just kind of lunge at that person to meet them because she's so excited and they're always happy, you know, to meet her because they love dogs, but I don't know how she knows that. I was walking her the other day and a car pulled up in front of us on the side of the road and she started doing the thing that she does when there's a dog lover and the man got out of the car and she's, you know, she's pushing toward him. And I said, Oh, I'm so sorry. Cause she was being really energetic. And he was like, no, no, no. I love animals. He's like, I'm a huge animal lover. And I thought, Oh, right. This is what she does when there's an animal lover. My question to you is how did she know that before he even got out of the car? That is a great question. <laughs> so I would say, I don't know. There are philosophies that there's energy and that dogs are sensing, right? That so that there's sort of our energetic field certainly could be related to that. It could be coincident that she's just like, somebody's going to come out of the car and odds are that they're going to like me. But yeah, I don't really know. Energy is something I dabble in being able to say, yep, that's a thing or no, it isn't a thing, depending on my own state of mind. So, you know, could be that. Um, But they're really cool, right? I mean, these dogs have like major antennas. Yeah, they really do. They really do. And I mean, I can be all the way upstairs, right? And the dogs are like, oh, she's awake now. Like, what? So they are attuned. That's for sure. I also wanted to cycle back to the last question and give a couple more pieces of advice because I totally thought of more. One Mm -hmm. is that just acting really playfully and goofy. So if there's a normal way that you kind of wrestle with her, play with her, like not pushing her around wrestle, but like more of a she's chasing you sort of wrestle can be helpful. So just sort of like, oh, well, I guess, you know, if she's playful, we're probably not going to die now. So you could reassure in that way. Or having her go get a toy or a food puzzle or something like that. But to me, the calming your own nervous system down is a huge one. And what a lesson there, too, that I'm asking you how to manage someone else's feelings. And the answer is still to manage mine first. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right. It's like how you do one thing is how you do everything. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Mm, Thank you. This has been really fantastic. And how would people reach you? And we never really kind of got around to your professional, like what people would hire you for or something like that. Could you give a little blurb on that? Well, I founded Others Unlimited, which is an ethnography and empathy training company. So we offer ethnographic research to companies who want to better connect with their audiences through, you know, immersive, really deep qualitative research. We also teach those research methods to strategists, researchers, designers, all kinds of folks, marketers. And then on the other side, the empathy training is a series of workshops that teach interpersonal communication skills. We teach deep listening, asking questions, having tough conversations, you know, non-judgment and creating emotional safety. Those workshops can happen on in a one-off way where, you know, we can have a, an all team meeting or an all hands kind of thing, but we do also deeper work, which is more of culture transformation inside of organizations, which can be longer engagements where we really dig into the culture and find out where the communication breakdowns are happening and, and why, and work through a series of, you know, kind of customized and specific trainings on particular skills, but also processes and analyze and look at how processes and policies and even just, you know, the ways that the culture communicates can be adjusted in order to make sure that everyone is feeling heard and feeling like they belong. And so that those longer engagements are really rewarding and pair really nicely with DE&I initiatives, as well as, you know, innovation initiatives, because they're this work helps every single part, you know, it helps people be more creative, it helps people be happier and more fulfilled in their work, it, it really impacts every single thing. So othersunlimited.com is the place to find out more information. And you can email me at Karen at othersunlimited.com. Thank you. That was great. The lesson is love. The lesson is la, 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 love. 
The lesson is love. This work of universal love takes all of us. So if you think this podcast might inspire someone you know, please share it with them. The Lesson is Love is a project of the Grisha Stewart Academy and Empowered Animals, produced by the thoughtful Diane Redding and me, Grisha Stewart. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it, and we have extra podcast perks at grishastewart.com love. Please check out my academy to learn more about thriving in community with dogs. May you be free from suffering. May you know you belong. May you live a life of meaning and purpose. And with every choice, may you turn toward love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love.